freedom and censorship can't exist in the same world. And that's true whether it's the government or private corporations who do the censoring. Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, and welcome to the Coleman Nation podcast. It's a show where I sit down with guests to discuss the future of free expression and thought in our interconnected world. Here, we will focus on issues involving social media, cancel culture, and free expression that everybody who cares about ideas or freedom should be wrestling with. I'm very excited today to have my very good friend, the Ron Coleman of the 2020s, Gavin Wax. Kind of an inside Twitter joke. You either get it or you don't. Gavin, say hi and welcome to the Coleman Nation. Hello, Ron. It's great to be on Coleman Nation, and uh, thank you for the high praise. It's a great start to the show. <laughs> Hope it doesn't go downhill from there. <laughs> well, that's up to you, Gavin. <laughs> <laughs> Gavin had me on his show on the, the Wax Cast podcast. In the past. In the past. <laughs> You're the best. Um, and uh, we had a great time that time. And we're going to talk about the things that we're supposed to talk about on on uh, thematically on this podcast in due in due time. But what I wanted to do based on a conversation that Gavin and I had earlier, uh, actually, I guess it was the, uh, it was last week, is ask Gavin to do something that I, I'm not sure anyone else has done with him. Not that I have listened to every single thing, but a lot of people who will be listening to this know who Gavin is. They know how cool he is and how interesting and and courageous he is they don't necessarily know who the hell he is uh where he came from how he got to be what he is today which is best known as the head of the new york young republican club of which i am an honorary member not being young uh, but i hang around and i'm on the advisory board thanks to gavin's uh pulling me in gavin how did, how did you find yourself in that situation were you was this something handed off to you by some matron on the upper east side were you born with a silver spoon in your mouth uh did you what's the history of the club how do you find yourself in the middle of it well first off ron we're very happy to have you as a member uh you were actually an associate member so not honorary associate oh, you're very you much part that. of the corpus of this institution we just <laughs> took away your right to vote that's the only difference uh that comes with uh your your wisdom and, and your many years on this earth but um <laughs> but as far as the organization is concerned I, I did not get it from a matron in the upper east i was not born with a silver spoon in my mouth i am not a wasp uh as many people may have suspected i was born in a small apartment uh in queens i come from uh you know my, i was raised by my my uh my mother and uh, my grandmother and uh you know i'm technically first gen and uh you know went to community college went to a city school so i'm, I'm pretty pretty much New York provincial as they come. Um, but as far as the club is concerned, it does have a rich tradition going back over a hundred years, you know, starting in the 1850s with uh, Lincoln, the rise of the Republican party through the 1800s into the 1900s. So we have a long legacy. Um, but when I came to take over this institution, it was kind of on its last legs. It had been mismanaged for many years. It had been neglected. Uh, it had kind of turned into a very, you know, kind of dismal, small social clique. Um, and we basically sort of took it over in a coup d'etat and uh, we used its legacy and its resources and we're rebuilding it into a real institution again, which I think needs to be replicated 
across the country in terms of you know youth outreach, in terms of building up the grassroots, in terms of rebuilding the party and the conservative movement. I think you know uh, what we've done here in New York and the belly of the beast could serve as an example from you know from Manhattan to Iowa to New Jersey and back. So, well, I think you're right, and that's part of what I want to talk about today. And, and we had a little bit of a preview of that in our discussion last week. How did you populate it with with such uh, hip, cool, conservative kids? I thought that perhaps in, in New York, upon my absence or upon my exit from the city during the, the last major, and it was nothing like this, the, the, the last downturn during the Dinkins administration, uh, that that reduced the population of conservatives in New York by a, a healthy 10%. Um, how did you get all these cool young people to 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 join? Where do you find them? Well, like the old adage goes, if you build it, they will come. And uh, <laughs> we built it up. And uh, we basically, uh, everything we were told not to do, whether it was sort of embracing the right, embracing Trump, being very you know outspoken, being a little uh, edgier and, and more out there, all those things contributed to the growth. Uh, you know, no one who's a Republican or conservative in New York is looking for, you know, milk toast Republicans. They're looking for people who are committed to their beliefs. I mean, why not? If you're going to be uh, such a minority in, in such a blue area and a blue city, you might as well have uh, organizations that stick to their values. So we did that. And, uh, you know, we, we professionalize the organization. We run it like a business. Um, we, we've put on great programming, great events. We've brought in great speakers, great thinkers and influencers in the conservative right-wing movement. Um, you really have. Give some examples of some of the people that have come to the club and have hung out at the club in the last couple of months. It's astonishing. We've had everyone from Ann Coulter to Michelle Malkin to Ron Coleman to Buck Sexton uh, to Matt Gates to uh, Steve Bannon to Raheem Kassam to Jack Posobiec to Mike Cernovich um, and more. I mean, the list goes on. I mean, we've really had a great lineup of speakers the last two years. I took over in April of 2019. We had less than 100 members. We had less than uh, you know, 15 grand on hand. And now we have, uh, oh, we're pushing 600 members uh, who are paying higher levels of dues. They're on recurring plans. And we have our own clubhouse in Manhattan for the first time in 60 years. We have close to 100 grand on hand. Uh, that was all done as a voluntary organization. Um, and the speakers we've brought in, you know, they've become you know, part of the club in many ways. They've become part of our board of advisors. They've helped promote the club. Um, and we've done great on that front. We also do socials, we do networking. So it, we, we run it like a full faceted organization. There's something for everyone. If you wanna hear the speakers, you come for the speakers. If you want the socials to meet other like-minded people, you come for the socials. If you wanna to go to on a deployment to New Jersey or Staten Island and help, you know, work within the party apparatus, we do that too. Um, so we, we try to, you know, reach out to as many people and uh, we've done a great job at it and we've we're, we've only been growing. So uh, it's it's been exciting times despite COVID, despite losing many of our members to the great state of Florida and elsewhere. <laughs> uh, many conservatives have fled the city uh, and you know, 2020 was rough. We were on a great trajectory. It certainly set us back a bit. Uh, we're back on pace and we're looking to keep building it uh, going forward. So the club is, I think it's fair to say, a voice. And now we're gonna get circled back around to our, to, our, to our theme here, which is free expression and the repression or, or attempts to repress that expression. Uh, I think it's fair to say that you have made yourselves heard in a way that has gotten under the skin of a few people uh, in the political environment, not necessarily only Democrats either. Uh, is, that, is that correct? 
that's yeah, very well put. We've made enemies uh, on both sides of the aisle. I would even say sometimes uh, our biggest enemies are actually uh, fellow Republicans, uh, Democrats. You know, we have our ideological differences, but they kind of, you know, we're doing our own thing, and you know, they'll they'll fight us on many issues. But sometimes the worst enemies in terms of damage they've caused to us as an institution have been. Uh, fellow Republicans. Um, and it's it's a shame, but we do have a lot of rot in our party and we have a lot of, uh, you know, people who are only looking out for themselves, you know, call them grifters, call what you call them what you will. Um, but there's certainly a problem in the Republican Party and the conservative movement at large with uh, individuals who are, uh, you know, less than savory and uh, certainly not looking out for for these broader principles that we're trying to advocate for. Do I want do I want to ask you what you're alluding to or do I not want to ask you what you're alluding to? It refers to many things. I mean, we've had issues over the years with many people, you know, causing us issues, causing drama, trying to remove me, trying to sabotage our events. I mean, even recently we had the New York City Sheriff show up to our venues. We believe that was an inside job. Someone wanted to screw us over. I don't believe it was a Democrat. I believe it was a Republican based on the information that they knew. Um, you know, we've had plenty of stuff happen over the years. We've only got, we, you know, we, we fight it off and we move forward, but it is, it is sad that, um, you know, with, with the minority that we are in, in the city that, you know, the Republicans still tend to fight each other. It's a, it's a shame. And it is a great New York Republican tradition, however. Uh, and I think, I mean, as a general rule, I think we all agree. We all observe that Democrats are better at maintaining party discipline once the, um, once, you know, the, a candidate is chosen, certainly. Yes. They they get into line like good Bolsheviks, uh, perhaps. When all the Mensheviks uh, are dead, of course. When, <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, if the Mensheviks and anyone who, who might be suspected of being a Menshevik wants to prove just how loyal he is to the regime. So the question I have is, is there something special in terms of having this independent voice, in terms of of being this little bit of light in the in the darkness of what is, as you put it right before we started recording, Gotham in 2021, to the fact that so many events in the club have focused on getting together in person. That actual in-person touching and feeling and seeing each other and making eye contact isn't doesn't that make a difference? Does it make or, or, or am I overstating the case? No, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, we've been committed to in-person events since basically the summer of 2020. We took a short break, um, but we were back as soon as we could doing outdoor events, et cetera. I, I reject, you know, these virtual events. I reject any sort of normalization of this COVID insanity. I think, you know, our membership does, our board does as well. I think that's part of, you know, what conservatives need to fight for. We need to return. Uh, to normalcy. Uh, I think that's become a plank and it's become part and parcel uh, to who we are as in terms of our ideology. And we want to, you know, expand on that. And I think it makes a big difference. I mean, you know, what, what, what we're doing is, you know, we're building these social networks, we're building this social infrastructure where people have friends who are like-minded, they can build, you know, a support network, they can find others professionally or personally uh, to help themselves either, you know, advance their careers or just, you know, have a, I don't want, I hate to use the term safe space, but there are a lot of people in this city that had no idea that, you know, there are other people that think like them. And uh, if they kind of are isolated like that, uh, they'll give up on their views, or maybe they'll start to accept uh, the, the left's narratives on things. So showing that there is a vibrant community of people 
that think the same way is important to maintaining some kind of uh, of a movement even behind the iron curtain i mean you know maybe that's even helped us because we're such a minority maybe in other parts of the country you don't really need something like this club because everyone just kind of assumes everyone around them thinks the same they're all republicans they're all conservatives to some degree uh, but certainly in a place like new york if you ever want to rebuild the party and you ever want to really take back the city, which I think is possible. I think the city is very cyclical. Um, you need something like this. So that that's kind of what we're about. And I also wanted to touch on what you said before, fully agree in terms of how the left marches in lockstep. Um, it, and, you know, there are things about the left and their tactics that we should seek to emulate. I don't think we should write it off. It's things like community building, community organizing. Um, I think a lot of people made fun of Obama for that, but the left has really created these networks in these cities in particular, but also more broadly, uh, that are have become committed party voters and they're committed parts of the party machine uh, because they've created these sort of support structures, they've created this sort of community and these bonds that, you know, normal political messaging is not going to break through. Republicans have to do the same thing uh, to really build a loyal, uh, organized and effective uh, party base, even in a place like New York. Well, I mean, and so now I want to co combine two points you just made. One was about about the building of networks and communities. And the other one is about, you know, people connecting with each other in person. One of the things we talked about last week was I, I raised an issue that I had been discussing with a person who I have mentioned on Twitter only as my wise friend who shared kosher pizza with me one time, um, who had a very interesting insight, which immediately sounded correct to me that what the year of lockdowns, whether or not all of us observe the whole year or not, but essentially this this Anis Horribilis that has just, you know, beginning to come to an end, one of the things that it has caused is a terrible rending of the social fabric that people who used to see each other every day, in the same store, the mail person, the mail carrier, uh, the males X, whatever we call it these days, the um, the people that, you know, it's true, we don't have in our, in our automobile, our automobile culture, we are a little bit more atomic than perhaps the small town ideal of, of, of 100 years ago, but people used to interact with the same people at the same coffee shop, at the same grocery store, and then all of a sudden, everything became virtual, people became isolated. And when you're when you're looking at an incipient authoritarian oligarchy, let's put it that way, which is what I think we are. I agree. Breaking apart social fabric like that is one of the things you would expect them to do, and they have done it. And my observation when my friend raised this was that what Gavin and company have done in New York with the Young Republicans Club is a fantastic model for rebuilding that that in-person human connection. I couldn't agree more. Uh, I think what we're seeing is the, you know, part of this kind of decline in the West is, you know, all these social connections and these social bonds have been broken. I mean, if you look at the heyday of this country, maybe the Gilded Age or whatever you want to say, I mean, even up until, you know, just after World War II, I mean, people were part of multiple associations. They were part of clubs. They were part of groups, their church, Knights of Columbus, whatever it is, there was this whole network uh, of people engaging each other socially. And I think that helped 
you know, build a national consensus. It helped reduce, you know, the partisan divide. I think a lot of people are now hiding behind screens. They don't interact with each other. They don't know what the other side is actually like or think. Or they interact anonymously, which is a very brings out the very worst in people. Exactly, and uh, that that's become you know more and more prevalent, and it's leading to just further and further divisions in society. I think also, just broadly, I think it's very easy to control a society if you are you know the quote unquote elites. Just to really you know kind of make this kind of theoretical here, but you know if you are to control society, atomize them, and if everyone's atomized, you know they're just they're in their apartments, they're just consuming Netflix, they're working in a corporate job, and they have nothing else beyond their job and and going back to their apartment, uh, they're disconnected. They're disconnected from other people. They're disconnected from reality. Uh, they're much more susceptible to groupthink and 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 you know just whatever is being pushed on them by the media and these major institutions. Um, that's why I think it's super important um, as a movement to to fight back against that and and not just look at things just purely uh, in terms of politics, but also in terms of just community building and and socially. Um, and I think that's a stronger base and framework to really build a long lasting, successful uh, ideological movement to counter the left. But I think, you know, you got to the root of it philosophically. I think we're facing, you know, some major existential crises as a, as a, as a nation, as a society, as a civilization, because we've never become so atomized, really. I mean, you, you're seeing it with the breakdown of the family, the breakdown in the church, the breakdown in these voluntary organizations. Um, I think there was a book called Bowling Alone, which really highlighted it. People are becoming lonely uh, and they're really running off to their corners. It's not good for them psychologically. And I think COVID has only exacerbated that problem tenfold, uh, to put it mildly. It was already going in that trend with the rise of the digital era and all these other forms of technology. But now with the COVID hysteria and the COVID mania, um, it's only thrown fuel on that fire. It's given people some kind of, you know, scientific or pseudoscience and medical explanation for their isolation. And it's just added a level of neuroticism to the whole thing. So it's, it's, it's very unhealthy. It's very unhealthy. And I think it's a, it's a variable at play in a lot of other of our societal ills, whether it's the divides, whether it's the hatred racially, culturally, ethnically, religiously, socioeconomically, generationally, or otherwise. Bingo. I think you hit it. I think, I think you're, you're looking at the big picture that I'm seeing and one of the things I find intriguing is that you're doing this in the city. What you're doing is in the city. You know, there's an old saw that you go to New York City to to be um, where eight million people are alone. That, the, that that there is you know this real lack of connection. But my experience as a as a, as actually a city cat compared to uh, you know my present. I live in you know in in, in a small city in New Jersey. It's not really a suburb. It's a, just a small city that happens to not be New York City. We can see, you know, we can see the, well, you can see the skyline from the moon now that they've made the building so ridiculous. But, um, you know, when I was a boy, Gavin, it was six stories was really all you needed. <laughs> but I actually think that people connect more in a neighborhood like the Upper West Side than they do in the suburbs. It's true. I mean, there are things about the suburbs that are very inorganic. I mean, a lot of it, you know, the car culture and, and you know, the subsidies from the federal government. I think generally speaking, most people want walkable streets where, you know, things are close to them, whether it's their groceries, their pharmacy, where they, you know, are near other people. I think, you know, say what you want about Europe, but in many ways, some of their development in terms of how they build their cities and their communities is a lot closer 
to what would evolve naturally if we didn't have you know such rigorous zoning laws and all the other restrictions on construction and it wasn't so car centric i think they've, they've shown in studies and other things that it, it's better on people's health and, and mind and body you know when they're maybe not as dense as some parts of new york but there is a balance between the kind of you know spread out car suburbs where you need a car to go everywhere and you know a tenement i think there's a balance between that and i think it used to be represented in you know the small american town you think new england with their greens and their kind of sense of community there i think we can i think we're starting to re relearn that and and try to apply it to how we develop you know cities and communities i think that's a good thing but i 100 percent agree with you and i think you know sort of going back to my theme it's a lot easier to shut somebody up and say that they're not entitled to be heard when you you're either talking anonymously or otherwise don't know them mm -hmm. to actually say to a person that you know and that you see every day uh, I, you know we've concluded that you're not entitled to an opinion that's something that only a regimented bureaucratized atomized society is capable of people yep. who who know each other as human beings and treat each other as members of the same you know human race don't generally do that in a, in a healthy society. I mean, obviously, you know, there are certain bars where uh, if I were to walk into and maybe even you, they would sniff us out in a second. And we, you know, we let's not be unrealistic about prejudice and open mindedness and, you know, uh, the, you know, the good hearted, uh, you know, uh, common man. The world is a complicated place, but I still do think that part of the the issue that we you know at the end of the day well this is why the yeah. left this is why the left was trying to shut down so many you know conservative speakers and so much debate on campus over the last 5 6 years because i knew i personally knew many friends who were default democrats who had their you know uh their conceptions about republicans and the right and they would go on campus and they would see some speakers you know whoever it may be they would they would attend some debates they would attend some forums and they would leave uh, even if they weren't completely sold, they at least were able to break bread, so to speak, with the other side. It was humanizing and it put things in perspective and it became a lot hard to demonize and delegitimize the other side. So I think the left was very smart in realizing many years ago that you can't allow open debate, you can't allow these open forums, you can't allow any contact even. You need to make them the other. You need to distance your side from theirs. It needs to become almost tribalistic and you need to, and that separation physically and in whatever other sense you want to put it, that separation allows the left to demonize the right. It allows them to delegitimize the right. It allows them to, you know, push these ever more uh, disgusting and, and kind of regressive and tyrannical uh, approaches to speech and, and, and treatment of political dissidents or minority groups politically, uh, because now they've essentially otherize the other side uh and there's really no there's no bonds there's no communication outside of maybe a family a family dinner which is kind of where a lot of the jokes you see on twitter it's like oh you have to go back to see family and you see your republican uncle or something because outside of that there's nothing else once or twice a year that's the big that's the big dinner and they're still trying to get rid of that too now they're trying to turn the families against each other you know hate mom and dad uh you know institutionalize these kids even earlier with daycare and uh you know really push them away from their parents as far as they can which is really what upset me about that that latest gop tweet where they said oh god can you believe it uh you know mothers 
are spending more time with their children. They need to get back to their cubicles at once for the <laughs> And it's like, this is supposedly the party of, you know, of the family, of religion, of traditional values. And here they are just kind of sounding like an HR department. Well, that is a very, very awkward space because this is something that my wife and I discuss frequently. I mean, she, she made gigantic sacrifices. Uh, you know, she, she uh, got into Stanford Law School and I didn't. She's, she's a very, very smart person with a legal education. And rather than practice law full time, she raised our children to, into some very, very impressive young, young men. And that was because their mother was around. Uh, not, you know, people can be impressive young people with, you know, not always having two parents around, not always having both parents around, but you want to give your children every chance. On the other hand, the economics there, there's a dichotomy, right? I mean, the one hand, to get by, you, you have to get by. And if you don't have a choice but to live in a major urban area where it's expensive to live, you've got a dilemma. On the other hand, to have a certain kind of lifestyle, you know, I, I, we both work because we want to be able to ski every year. We, we both work because we want to have a seven-bedroom house. But, you know, that's a, I guess that's a topic for a different issue. I actually want to go back. Well, I think it ties in. Yeah, I think oh, yes. it goes Tell to me broader decline of, 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 of the West and that, you know, I think most people's general preferences would be for what you described, this kind of comfortable middle-class lifestyle with a family, with a multiple kids. Um, but economically, it's become hard just because of the pressures of higher costs of living and more demanding jobs. And then culturally, uh, it's been ingrained in many people that families are bad, families are stupid, homemaking is stupid. Um, it's, it's repressive to be a mother. It's evil to be a mother, you're much happier, you know, working a soulless job somewhere. I think you have this cultural pressure from the media and the institutions, you have this economic pressure from, you know, the money printing and all the other elements that are going on in, in our economy that's driving up the cost of living. And it's really led to a breakdown of the family. It's led to a decline in birth rates. And overall, I think our society is suffering because of it. And I think some people like to point to just one aspect, the economy, others like to just point to the cultural elements, but it's kind of holistic in terms of how uh, we, the West have, has really come under, uh, you know, just a lot of strain in terms of basic foundations of family building and, and, and wealth creation and, and moving up the socioeconomic ladder to become harder and harder, um, despite maybe our technological advances and other things that make it seem like we've become more prosperous, but in many areas we haven't. You're right. You're hundred percent right. And, and those things are all, they all, listen, at a certain point, it's a singularity, right? There's this, there's this secular decline. There's this whole idea that a lot of the things that we thought of as progress have actually been taken off the table. We should see people, given the tech, given tech, what technology does is, is enables us to be more productive than we were before. And instead, we're, we're somehow poorer, not only spiritually and socially, but economically, uh, only an elite, people who are in, in you know, in knowledge-oriented uh, businesses, or who are or in technology, or who are in the business of moving money around, or of course people on Wall Street who are in the legalized. Well, what do you even call it? <laughs> I mean, it's you know the Wall Street racket, whatever we want to call it. That the those sectors are getting wealthier, and, and ironically, what what, what this. With the way the Democrats, again, going back to their excellent messaging, did to to grab onto that, notwithstanding that their policies are the engine for so much of of, of what we're complaining about, is say, oh, let's can't, you know, it's also all about uh, student loans. 
let's cancel all the student loans, which is just, you know, you've got moral hazard, you've got so many reasons. It's such a bad policy for so many reasons, but it's exactly the way they operate. And their policies created that issue to begin with. So they've created an issue and now they're the savior. Uh, you know, they they created this 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 non-existent issue pushing for affordable college, but obviously they guarantee and they underwrite the loans, and that led to just massive price inflation with schools. And then people were graduating with a mortgage, and now they're, you know, their whole life is consumed by paying down this debt and and taking on, you know. And what kind of education do they have? And they're not, yeah, and they're not even getting an education. They're not getting an education that helps them uh, with with employable skills, and they're also not getting more of a traditional liberal arts education. They're not learning about how the world works, so they're they're just getting propaganda. I mean, there used to be kind of this divide. I remember, you know, there's the more you know working class Joe. It's like, oh, learn to weld, learn to make, you know, learn these hard skills, which is good. And then there was another side that said, oh no, you need to learn the classics. You need to learn, you know, what Plato said. You need to learn, you know, the way of the world. But what's funny now is ne we're getting neither. They're getting just this kind of this indoctrination, this 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 Marxian dialectic, that's all they're getting. They're just getting propaganda. They're not getting, you know, either the real world hard skills to, to be employable, and they're not getting the more lofty, uh, you know, uh, liberal arts education. And I say that, you know, what it used to be, not what it means today, uh, of learning how the world works and, and learning, you know, the history and learning, you know, how to be a better person, how to be a better society. They're getting neither. They're just coming out indoctrinated, dumber, lazier more entitled and then they're loaded with a lot of debt and and they're getting they, they have no op, they have no opportunity to make money they have fewer job opportunities the jobs they get are, are not as rewarding as they may have once been they don't pay as much um so there are legitimate grievances that people in my generation and, and the generation uh below me are facing um but you know the left it's it's just it's just funny they create the problem now they create now they're going to provide the solution uh which is just going to be more control and and more strings and more government overreach. And you talk about the the nature of the old uh, liberal arts education. And you mentioned earlier about how long ago the left began its indoctrination processes, its process, especially on the campuses. When I arrived at Princeton in 1981, and I mentioned at least before, you and I have discussed this, neither one of us comes from a an elite family. I also, for all practical purposes, a second generation American. My, my mother is an immigrant. My father was, was an orphan, uh, raised by an immigrant. And I somehow found myself at Princeton. And the first political and public event that I encountered there was a lecture by uh, the Reverend Jerry Falwell, who, uh, of course, was the head of the, of the, moral, the, the moral majority, who was the per first well-known public figure in my lifetime to uh, flex the muscles of evangelical Christians in politics. And I wasn't able to get a ticket because the auditorium they were using was not all that large and it was sold out, but I was able to, to sort of see from the outer corridor. And what I saw was that about a third or a quarter of the people who had gotten tickets had used the opportunity to stand up and turn their backs to him while he spoke. That was that was what I learned. The first thing I saw at Princeton was that rather than either engage him in debate, 
or let other people have the opportunity to listen to him, the performance of coming in, taking up seats, and turning around to demonstrate your moral superiority based on your exquisite moral training as a 19-year-old uh, was the priority. And at that time, I would say it's that the Ivy League schools still had a pretty good, offered a pretty good education. Uh, but in terms of the things- This is gone on for. This didn't happen that's right. tonight. It didn't happen right after Trump was elected. It didn't just happen in the Obama years. This has been an issue with these higher education institutions for decades, for generations, where they've, you know, they, they've become everything, they, uh, they've, they've become antithetical to their supposed founding principles of education and open forms of discussion, discourse, and the exchange of ideas. They've become uh, kind of just daycare, essentially, for entitled brats. And, <laughs> you know, a lot of them have produced brilliant minds. They've produced many, you know, great engineers, great doctors, great lawyers, great thinkers, and it's given them this sort of institutional reputation uh, that shields them from a lot of legitimate criticism. But that reputation that these institutions have built up over the years, they're just drawing, they're just leveraging it, and they're drawing a ton of capital from it uh, to promote these kind of childlike, woke ideologies. And I think we're starting to hit a point in society where uh, the respect for these institutions is beginning to really decline and people's realization of what they've become is starting to rise. Um, and I think that's that, that, that doesn't bode well for them in terms of how they're going to be able to last, how they're going to be able to continue to do business effectively, how they're going to be able to, uh, you know, cling on to this, this reputation that they earned in a bygone era of being, you know, real centers of learning and, and academics, which they, many of them are hardly anymore, uh, Obviously, some schools are worse than others, and there's certain divisions between the Ivy Leagues and other schools, state schools, public schools, whatever it is. But um, I think a lot of people are now waking up to the value of what a degree really is now, what you're actually learning from there. And I think it's a good thing. I think as a society, I think it's a good thing that we're moving away from such a college degree-oriented society where if you don't have one or you you you, you didn't you know do full four years or whatever it is that you're less of a human. I think a lot of people are realizing you can learn so you just a lot of self-learning you can get access to all these materials and 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 uh and and professors classes online for basically nothing and you can get the same level of education without spending it without exposing yourselves to the indoctrination and without going into debt so i think these are positive developments but it's crazy to think how long this has been brewing on for i mean even before your time i mean you go back to the even like you know the the, either the free speech movement and and a mm -hmm. lot of the liberals and the hippies on the west coast i mean a lot of those schools were, were dominated by you know the cultural left um and you know in many ways some of them were a little better maybe some of them did support free speech and maybe they were anti-war and you know there were some values of theirs that could be described as liberal quote unquote but their second generation the ones that came after them and now are replacing them in the administration are just completely off off the off the reservation marxists and uh, there's just been no pushback uh from a lot of people and uh bingo yeah and that's the problem Bingo. That's the point. Is that I, you know, as, as an idealistic and naive um, non-member of the of the of this you know class that I was observing, this what we might call a nascent class of professional complainers, I was so I felt so incredibly grateful to be at this unbelievable institution. I could not. It was it was like being admitted to Jupiter 
for college. It was, you know, my, my father burst into tears when they dropped me off at Princeton. He could not believe, given his upbringing, what he was, what he was seeing me walk into. And then I see the way people treated others who disagreed with them. And what astonished me was they were being allowed to get away with it. Where were the adults? Where were the authority figures who were supposed to be teaching and guiding the young minds? And it reminded me exactly of what you're talking about, because I because I grew up 20 years earlier in the 60s. And I remember hearing about riots and about libraries being burned. And I remember thinking to myself, as I was unfortunately a little bit too plugged into the news for a little kid, <laughs> um, I'm wondering, why are they allowed to do that? Right. And I think there was a blase mentality that sort of took over in the United States. It's like, oh, well, they're just kids. They're going to grow up and, you know, they grow up and they get a family, they get a job, then they'll become conservative. Let them have their kind of radical fun now, whatever. Um, and they kind of just let this let this go on and it, and it festered and it's now it's becoming a real problem and it's leading to a lot of cultural, institutional and societal rot. Because maybe in the 60s, you know, many people thought, oh, you know, these hippies, just just let them be, you know, they'll grow up sooner rather than later. But they never did grow up. And then, you know, the next generation only got worse um, because we just we kind of let our guard down. We let our standards be lowered and and we didn't put our foot down as a society to say, listen, you know, this kind of behavior is not acceptable. This kind of behavior is not uh, conducive to learning. It's not, it's not part of what higher education is about. And, and, you know, you guys should really, you know, quote unquote, check your privilege. Cause unlike you, I'm sure many of the people there did come from, you know, some kind of uh, family money and they didn't come from, you know, well-to-do families. And this was their way to virtue signal. This was their way to, you know, tell mom and dad, uh, how, how, how bad they were for being part of, you know, this petite bourgeoisie in America, but a lot of people there, you know, like yourself and maybe others who were first, first people to go to college. I was the first people, I, neither of my parents went to college. They were there actually for an education. They weren't there to promote their virtue and, and to show, you know, how rebellious they are and how forward thinking they were. They were there for an actual education to better themselves and to live a better life than their families. So I think that kind of class divide is also part of it. And I think a lot of people uh, are only beginning to really talk about it. And we were only beginning to talk about all these things, Gavin, and I'm great. I'm so glad that you and I are having these conversations, both um, sharing them with our podcast listeners and the ones that you and I have on a very frequent basis. They're, that's exactly what the bad guys don't want to have happen. They don't want these things to be discussed. They don't want us to be heard. And I think so far we're being tolerated. Um, and we might be tolerated for the long run because we're not all that threatening in and of ourselves. Uh, we've probably both walked up to the line a few times. Uh, I, you know, I would give anything to know whether we were ever on any agendas. Uh, as I mean, I went for a couple of months where my follower growth on Twitter was absolutely capped. It was 127.8. And that was the number. And it was just ridiculous because I would see new people following me every day and the number would never, never change. And that was, I think, a little way of Big Brother just sort of touching me on the back of the hand and saying, I'm here. <laughs> it's sad because it's a it's it's such a manipulated platform. I had someone tweet at me, I think this morning or yesterday, 
uh, saying, I've had to follow Gavin three times um, and mm -hmm. I know him personally and he, he was very confused by it. I think, you know, if, if these platforms were completely organic and they weren't manipulated and they weren't being run through some algorithms, I think a lot of voices on the right uh, would have, you know, two, three X the number of followers. They would have two, three X the reach if they gave out blue checks um, uh, to, to the right by the same standards, they give it to the left. I think a lot more uh, of these of these accounts would grow even more just by having that kind of verification. Um, but this is these are the subtle things they've been doing for who knows how long uh, to sort of minimize our, our, our side, minimize our voices and minimize our ideas. And it's, it's effective. It definitely it's definitely been working. So things like uh, Substack and podcasting, even though podcasting, you have to, you know, if you don't play, uh, if you if you go too far over the line, they, you could get yanked off uh, Apple or, you know, some of the other major platforms. But there are many, many ways to distribute podcasts. You started one sometime last year. There is a tremendous opportunity through these unregulated channels to continue the conversation uh if indeed there is such a thing as privacy and and there is such a thing as unmonitored speech and that's an open question unfettered discussions unfettered discussion that's the clubhouse quotation of course i i, I think that even though it might be naive to think that they can't and won't try to shut people down there that we need to be heard everywhere and we need to be heard also going back to my original point in person to each other sitting down at the same table and bending the elbow and having these in-person experiences like you're you know I, every time i open my email okay i never close my email but i'm constantly getting notices of a new event at the new york young republican club it's in another in-person event it's another opportunity to see the gang and i think it's it's just fantastic what you're doing what are is, is there a vision is there something that we should be looking for in the future not just for the club but for you gavin i mean i'm always just you know we're looking to build it up uh to grow it i would love you know to to constantly uh bring in bigger and uh, more speakers i mean we've had a lot of uh of a, we've had a bit of a rough time with the restrictions in new york that's why we had to get our own venue our own clubhouse to host we're kind of like a speakeasy of uh of, of organizations, so to speak, because we have to kind of hide here. We can't publish our address, all that sort of thing. I mean, the vision of the club is to build something lasting. I want it to last another hundred years. I want it to become a place where people could come, could could exchange ideas, all the things we're talking about that should be happening on campus. Speakeasy is a good word. Yeah, actually, a, a cultural <laughs> speakeasy, so to speak. We do have alcohol, but you know, we also have dissident ideas, and uh, we were also promoting things that are counter to the orthodoxy. So, and as far as I'm concerned, look, I'm always trying to build my reach and uh, constantly just try to, uh, you know, engage with other people. I think this has been a fantastic discussion, and I think you know more of these are better. And obviously, you know, uh, podcasts are still kind of the wild west of media. Um, soon they will be, you know, they will clamp down on them. But that's why we need to take an all of the above approach to get our ideas out there, right. kind of like the pamphleteers of old. You know, just spread it far and wide. As, as far as you can. Um, and that's why I also reject, you know, a lot of conservatives and people on the right retreating to their ideological ghettos on things like Parler and Gab, as much as I have respect for those sites and what they're trying to do. I think, you know, just preaching to the choir constantly and just kind of talking in an echo chamber is not going to do anything. We need to be 
on the major platforms, even if we are a minority, even if it is very oppressive in terms of you know how they how they conduct themselves. So Twitter is, is horrible in terms of how it's run. I have nothing but uh, bad things to say about Jack Dorsey and team, but they have the biggest reach, they have the most eyeballs, and you know we have to keep staying on these platforms and getting our message across. Um, until you know they they fully ban all of us, which may be soon. Maybe it's next week. Maybe it's in a month. <laughs> you nailed it, Wax. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much for being so flexible about timing and joining us uh, as as one of my very first guests. You and I have become very friendly in the last year or so, and I hope that it continues. And uh, see you uh, at the club very soon. Yeah, this was great. I wish we had another hour. We could have talked about even more. We'll have to do it again soon. All right, so long. Thank you, Ron. Thanks. Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman Nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com. Or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.